This movie from 1936 is wild. Today I'm talking about Fury. This is Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. movie friends welcome to scott's self-indulgent movie podcast i am scott and today i am talking about a movie uh, that i've been meaning to see for a while called fury from uh, from 1936 it's actually it was difficult for me to find a copy of it and this was something of a wild rabbit hole to go down for me both in terms of watching the movie and then also getting into the players involved and then also what got changed about it so you get to follow me uh, as I go through my re-go through my journey again. So without further ado, let's get started. I've spoken a fair amount about how being a movie enthusiast can impact your viewing experience. It means your take on remakes will differ, especially if you feel like the remake did a much worse job and also makes certain plot elements easier to spot. What's far more rare is to watch a movie with a great reputation and come to wonder, why the fuck would that director put out that message? But to do that, I'm going to have to first tell you about the movie, spoil it, and then dive into a bit of film history. Fury stars Spencer Tracy, who stars as Joe Wilson, a soon-to-be-married man who is stopped on flimsy evidence in a child kidnapping case. Despite having nothing to do with the case, Wilson is promptly put in jail, and gossip around town makes folks mad enough to burn the jail down, presumably killing Joe. Hoping to bring the guilty parties to justice, the district attorney decides to bring prominent members of the mob to trial and get justice for Joe. So, big time spoilers ahead with the final twist. Just when the DA's case seems to be lost, since no one will testify against their friends and colleagues, the case is swiftly turned against the 22 members of the mob after newsreel of the assault on the station is discovered, catching many of these members in the act. Now, now up to here, this movie is all too relevant and in many ways brilliant. Much like the Twilight Zone episode The Monsters Are Due on Mulberry Street, the first two-thirds of the movie are one of the most cynical takedowns of how scared humans react when faced with something horrible. In essence, it is much easier than people might think for someone to be misled and become a monster. There's actually echoes of the director's own film M in this, but we'll get into that later. What's worse is that they will deny that they did anything wrong or ever had that kind of bile in them. This is perfectly exemplified by a woman claiming innocence and then fainting fainting when her own hateful actions are put up on screen. They are denying their part in a murder even when evidence of their involvement is plain as day. And this hits especially hard as a modern viewer where the ubiquity of cell phones has made a lot of the abuses by average citizens, police, and beyond undeniable, at least without extensive excuse making. It's much harder to say someone was resisting arrest when the footage shows you so shows you shooting them in the back. That brings us to the second twist. On the night of the verdict, however, the movie adds its second major twist, which is Joe is alive, which means that the mob, while certainly guilty of a lot, are not murderers. This is discovered by Joe's would-be wife, Catherine, who chastises Joe for being so bitter and letting this misled group of people take the fall for something they didn't do. And despite being mad as hell since the blast nearly killed him and did kill his sweetie of a dog, Rainbow, Joe enters the courtroom as the verdicts are read and sets the record straight. 
Now, there's a lot of moral debate you can make about the message of the movie, which I'm sure was meant to be there, but he better than the mob who tried to kill you. And I assume at this time in America, the presumed punishment would be death or something close, so it's not quite justice, even in a stringent eye-for-an-eye kind of way, to kill people who didn't actually kill somebody else. But it is a wild-ass message coming from this movie's director, Fritz Lang. Why? Well... Now it's film history time, because Fritz Lang is a legend. Fritz Lang is one of the best directors of all time, who directed some of the most important and influential movies of all time, including, but certainly not limited to, the sci-fi classic Metropolis, the crime thriller M, which also also addresses the idea of mob violence when frightened, and his sprawling Dr. Mabuse films. For context, he made important films in the silent and early sound eras, and was a major player in the German Expressionist movement that inspired American film noirs movie, American film noir movies, which he also made. <laughs> important fella in movie history, to say the least. He also fled the Nazis, and not in a generalized way. Like Joseph Goebbels met with him personally to lead the German film studio UFA in 1933. And that caused him to first flee to Paris and then to America, especially in light of his mixed religious heritage, half Jewish and half Catholic. So it is really, really weird to see a man who fled the Nazis, allegedly by selling off his wife's jewelry, to avoid violent persecution by the state and mobs inspired by the state, to put out a movie that says the mob is awful, yes, but they're just misled. This is three years after the footage of Nazi book burning was widely available. The Nuremberg laws were written and Hitler was in power. So why did that happen? Well, I did some digging and found out something depressing. So there is a reason the movie is like this. Sadly, a lot of the imagery present in this movie is all too familiar to anyone who's read or seen To Kill a Mockingbird or any other scene where a band of ignorant torch-wheeling white folks attack a jail. It's a lynch mob. Their entire intent is to subvert what is an already messed up judicial process by acting as judge, jury, and executioner based on rumor or prejudice. And it's a terrifying image, even if their target is one of the era's most famous actors, Spencer Tracy. It would also hit a lot harder if Lang got to tell the story he wanted to tell, because in his original film, Tracy's Joe Wilson was black. Well, why couldn't he tell that story? Because of the Hayes Code. I've written about the Hayes Code before, but one thing that's been underwritten is how much it was shaped and essentially created by one man, Joseph Breen. Breen was the head of the Production Code Administration that, unlike previous censors, could determine which movies did or didn't make it to theaters. So if Breen didn't sign off, your movie wasn't making it to audiences. So even at the height of anti-lynching laws in America, right around 1936 actually, Breen, who was also a giant anti-Semite, wanted to avoid both the shock of racial violence, but also didn't want to give it a name. So by his account, Lang went about telling an anti-lynching story as best he could with using Tracy as a stand-in. It doesn't fully explain the ultimate payoff of the film, but when you realize that this was meant to be a story about a black man taking the moral high ground against a white mob, it hits a lot different. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.